Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in the uh, story of Joseph, as I said. So the uh, we have the sale of Joseph into slavery. We have the Midianites selling him, Joseph, to Potiphar at the end of last chapter. So 37 ends with the sale of Joseph to Potiphar. So we're kind of right in the middle of the whole Joseph novella, the whole Joseph drama. Uh, And then we get this interruption. Chapter 38 is this interruption in the Joseph narrative. Uh, But we can talk if we want to at some point about why it is that it's not unrelated to the Joseph story. But we're getting this uh, parenthetical story Joseph is sold to Potiphar, and now we start 38.1. About that time, Judah left his brothers and camped near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and cohabited with her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. She conceived again and bore a son and named him Onah. Once again she bore a son and named him Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him. All right, so Judah leaves his brothers, and the English, what does the English say? That he uh, camped, right? So he he, mar- he leaves his brothers, and he camps, and he saw the daughter of a Canaanite whose name was Shua. So Yehuda marries a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman. Where, but in Hebrew somewhere it should say that he goes down, right? So there's, somewhere it says that he... He separates from his brothers and he goes down. Uh, and he marries this Canaanite woman, Shua, and he lives with her. She conceives and bears him a son named Er. She can, now, notice notice the spelling of this name, right, in Hebrew. Ayin Reish is Er. So she conceives, her firstborn is Er. She conceives again and bears a son named Onan. She conceives a third time and names him Shelah. She has three sons, right? And people who want to do the details about, wait a minute, how can this be inserted in the Joseph narrative? How many years have elapsed? People who want to do that math, I'm terrible at that. Mm -hmm. But the rabbis and people who do that say, if you stick this in exactly the right place, then if she has a child every year, the math works out. That... You know, then it puts it's in the right place. It, it's in the right place, and it's fine. Um, so don't worry, somebody's worked that out. Um, so in any case, she has, she has three sons. So if you want to deal with the the you know timing of things, then it's one every year. So they're very close together. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, and so now let's go to verse six. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was displeasing to the Lord, and the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Join with your brother's wife and do your duty by her as a brother-in-law and provide offspring for your brother. But Onan, knowing that the seed would not count as his, let it go to waste whenever he joined with his brother's wife so as not to provide offspring for his brother. What he did was displeasing to the Lord, and he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Stay as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he too might dislike his brothers. No, he, he might. He too might die like his brothers. 
So Tamar went to live in her father's house. All right. That would mean the one year doesn't work. Because Shelah... Oh, right, right. Shelah's younger. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. It does work. It does work. No, I read it. Because it, it was 18, 17, 16. So if, if she marries the first one at 18, he dies. She marries the second one, he's 17. Right, he dies. So it's possible that the father, you know, is really just truly withholding and wants him to be quote unquote older, but really it's because he's afraid he's gonna die. It can it can work, but you know, whatever. All right. So I mean, if you need it to work, <laughs> they can make it work. Right. All right. So Judah got a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name is Tamar. Uh, but Er, Judah's firstborn, was displeasing to God. How do we say displeasing to God in Hebrew? What is the Hebrew in verse 7? By he Er, before Yehuda. What was Er? Oh my gosh, is really nobody ever following me in there? Right, 7. By he Er, then it was the Er, before Yehuda, the eldest of Yehuda was what? Ray. Ra. Was that Ra? What do you notice? Ah. Oh. So, so look at the letters, right? Now do your rabbinic interpretation for me. Something is reversed, and he's destined to, right? That air is Ra, right? So it's something is completely reversed about this guy um, and that means that right he's a goner uh, some people want to tie all of these names right to uh, things that are connected to loss um, Onan some people want to tie to own meaning grief right so there's a hint you can see a hint in each of these names to what's coming all right so air the firstborn is Ra. Something is flipped. And so he, he's gone. He's dead. Then Judah said to Onan, his brother, join with your brother's wife and do your duty by her as a brother-in-law and provide offspring for your brother. So what are we talking about here? Because the, the Hebrew does not say... Um, there's a verb here that we don't have in the English. But does it say provide offspring or it says take care of her offspring? But it was Jewish law. Zera and raise and establish seed for your brother. To your brother. What are we talking about here? What's going on? What is this? This is maintaining the tribe. So maintaining the tribe. What do we call this? Leverett marriage. Leverett marriage. So this is this is how Genesis understands leveret marriage, which is different from how Deuteronomy is going to understand it, which reminds us the Bible is written over a thousand year span, right? Things change over that time. So how Deuteronomy treats leveret marriage is different from the way Genesis is going to treat it. What does leveret mean? Lever, it, lever is from uh-uh. Latin meaning brother-in-law. Okay. L-E-V-I-R. Okay. So the lever has the obligation to give his dead brother 
offspring. Right, heirs, not heirs. So, so leveret marriage is the 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 wife of the dead brother. If she, if she has no sons, if she doesn't have a son by her dead husband, the brother is obligated to give her to give his brother offspring. We should be very clear. It's not about giving her offspring. It's about giving his brother offspring. Okay. It's family. He, he's considered, that child will be considered the offspring of the dead brother and will inherit the portion of the dead brother. It didn't sound like the brother who they coupled her with was in agreement with. They don't have a choice. This is not a choice. Okay, okay, we're, we're going there. We're going there. So the, I'm talking about the, I want you to understand, there's, a, there's an institution of leveret marriage that if a woman dies childless, the brother is obligated to give her offspring, period. I mean, to give his dead brother offspring. It's about clan, it's about land rights, it's about lots of stuff. She has been acquired by the family, right? Her sexuality, access to her sexuality and fertility has been acquired by the family. And so she is used again to provide offspring for the dead son. And and in reality, she then is protected as well. She has a family, she has status, she has all those things that were the only way to get that in the ancient Near East for women. Laura? Yes. Yeah. And after, if, she, if, she, if he gives her a son, can he then go on and marry someone else? Yes. Okay. Yes. So his, his, those that will be his children have to come from another woman? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, I shouldn't say that, because I think in some cases, an early lover at marriage, she would have been married to that brother. So they would have conceivably had conceivably they would have had um, <laughs> other offspring she has no choice she has she doesn't matter in this she has no choice in Deuteronomy he has a choice it is not here in Genesis in Genesis it seems there is no choice that in in Deuteronomy we get remember the taking off of the shoe and you spit in the shoe and give it to her right that that the yibum remember we have this in the story of uh, Ruth that one redeemer says, I don't want the job. You can have it, Boaz, right? And, but you have to go through the, the ritual of saying no. Well, that's where I, uh, I think you answered my question. Because I knew that somebody else could stand in, and that comes only in Deuteronomy. Yes, it's this later. Is an earlier time when survival, perhaps, is more important. And, right, an attachment to, you know, my the clan's name, mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and families within the, you know, larger tribal system, um, being very attached to name and inheritance. This is a lot yeah. about inheritance. It sounds like in a society where you don't have cars, this is very convenient. <laughs> okay, usually I can jump, but Sarah, I think you're going to have to make that connection for me. Where you don't have cars, this is very She's convenient. Right there. She's right there. Got it. And she can't move around. Got it. So she's. Those street cars. Right. So it's. Right. So. There you go. They had camels. All right. They had camels. 
All right. So. Who would the children say is their father? Hmm? Who would the children say is their father? They are the sons of the dead. They are the sons of the dead son. And the brother? I mean, you know, how how they understood kinship terminology around some of this, I don't know. But 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 legally, like the important thing was that they were considered the he well, let's just say he he the son would be considered the descendant of the dead brother. He's the heir. Just one more. If taking the brother and the brother has children with his own wife, in the rules of inheritance then, how would the children of the dead brother relate when they inherit property from the brother they don't inherit property from the brother that is the biological father they Ah. inherit the property of their social father right so they're not really equal to the children no the biological father is not the social father he's a sperm donor he's a sperm donor and they do not inherit from the sperm donor they inherit from their social father which is the, the dead guy. Is in the in the um, in the societies that we're living in that area in time. Is this something that is sort of like codifying behavior that otherwise would have been more varied, or otherwise in other non-Israelite societies, it's sort of like it, it wasn't it wasn't specified that it had to be somebody from within the clan, and you might have conflict within other groups as to who. Who fathers children with this woman? P- possibly. And so and so and so they say, okay, well we're you know, and because that can lead to conflict and stuff like that, we're just going to make a rule. Possibly, and and because we leverage marriage, also we found evidence from Newsy and other places uh-huh. that are contemporary with early Israel okay. that they were doing the same thing. Because presumably there are reasons to have a. a, a so some want to say it's because they've acquired that right from her already. Because um, conflict about who could be with her, who cares? Be with her and take whoever let the strongest man win. Like so, in, in a way, well, doesn't matter unless you're worried about her. But but um, you know, but let what, what, let whoever yeah. wants to take her take her. But I think is that they'd acquired rights to her fertility already, okay. and so they're like, so we should get we should get something for that. We paid a bride price for her. We should we should benefit from. Having acquired her, and if she kept having girls, they would keep crying until she had a son. Presumably, yeah. yeah. Okay, wait, well, Robert. Yeah, to, to the point of having girls, this is—it just sort of strikes me that the the other similar story is the one of whoever the two daughters were. That, Lot. Lot, yeah. Mm-hmm. That had there were no sons, and their argument was, well, we got a. This is a special case, and it needs to be dealt with properly, and it was. Um, so both of these stories sort of seem to uh, reflect for that time a, a, a pretty um, thoughtful way of, of dealing with this whole important thing about inheritance. Right. It was really, really important. Exactly, them. yes. So, and, and it's interesting. So if you hold in mind the story of Lot, and then you're gonna, we're going to see what happens with Tamar, like they're both... Instances also of what Torah will allow and or not allow, but what what Torah tacitly supports as being 
normally cuckoo, crazy town, Torah supports it when it comes to this issue uh, and what people are willing to, you know, to do to make sure that that, that they do what they believe is right. All right. So Onan, Onan doesn't, knowing that the seed would be counted not as his, let it go to waste whenever he joined with his brother's wife. Right? Does anybody here know the word onanism? Yeah, I was going to ask. This is, this is where it's from. Oh. Uh, coitus interruptus, mm-hmm. right? To spill seed. It's called onanism. Masturbation. Sorry. So the only time it's mentioned in this little spot. Or, or what? Onan. Onan. Yes. He's dead. This is he, he, he gets dead. But this is the one small men- mention of him in the whole Bible that brings the name onanism to yeah. our present vocabulary. Yeah, he, this is it. This is, it's a very powerful um, so, so onanism, right? So, you know, spilling seed, meaning seed not being used in any way towards reproduction, uh, comes right from this. So he, so he, he's withholding pregnancy from Tamar, right? So either this is about um, Inheritance that he knows if she remains childless, the dead brother has no sons to inherit, which means his family inherits more. So that's one interpretation. The rabbis see him as even worse than that, and they say that he didn't want Tamar's beauty being marred by pregnancy. So in other words, he he's so selfish and so self-centered that like he doesn't want her to have a baby because he wants her. You know, as his like sexual object, because yeah, yeah. um, you'll notice the coupling with her doesn't stop. Right. Right. So, yeah. right. He he doesn't say, and therefore he never went to her tent. It says whenever he coupled with her, he pulled out. Okay. So the rabbis have some basis for saying, you know, like he he kept going back. He just would make sure that she didn't get pregnant. I think you should have gotten 20,000 points. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for this being my audition piece that I chose? Yes. Clearly insane. All right, so... Um, so is, this, is this used by some fundamentalists it can to justify be. opposition yeah. to It can be, control? but it's, it's absolutely crazy. But, of course, they're always going to pick a verse and lift it out out of context and say... This is why it's just hundred percent. So yes, some fundies pick this up, but it's, you know, it's ridiculous. All right. So Onan, knowing that the, uh, what he did was displeasing to God and God took his life also. So now two, two up, two down, right? <laughs> so she's, she's married two brothers and two brothers have died. So then Judas says to his daughter-in-law Tamar, stay as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. (laughs) For he thought he too might die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So Judah has just essentially banished her from his house um, and gave her back to her father. But she is still bound. She is still considered married. So she can't marry anyone. She cannot marry anyone else. She's in her father's house. She's waiting for the third son. And Judah says, because Judah says, just wait till he's a little older. Um, but secretly, right, he says, I'm afraid it's something about her 
that's right. caused the death of my two sons. So I'm not giving her my my only son. Forget about it. My third and only remaining son. Absolutely not. Forget about it. Now we've inserted this story, right? We have the story inserted just after Yosef has been what sold. We have the story of Judah right after. Who was it who suggested they sell Joseph? Judah. So we have this story right after Judah has suggested the sale of Joseph into slavery, thereby bereaving his father of his beloved son. This story is not unrelated to what's happening in the Joseph narrative. Right? So here's Judah in a good light. Here's <laughs> Judah, certainly not in a great light, although the other brothers wanted to kill Joseph, right? They, they threw him in a pit and we're going to let him starve. Um, so Judah does suggest something that ultimately saves Joseph's life and puts him on a path to you know, his, his destiny. But he doesn't do it for altruistic reasons. But we, we, don't, we don't know, but what we know is he's certainly participating in bereaving the father of his son. favorite son. So now we have Judah losing two sons and worried now about his beloved and only third son, right? So what goes around in Torah comes around. So Tamar's living in her father's house. Let's go to verse 12. Yes. Yes. Okay. Remember, it's not monogamous. Okay. This is not a monogamous society, okay. right? You're allowed to have as you're allowed to have a lot of wives, okay. right? How many right. did Jacob have, right? Right. 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 So, okay. A long time afterwards, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. When his period of mourning was over, Judah went up to Timnah to his to his sheep shearers, together with his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And Tamar was told, your father-in-law is coming up to Timnah for the sheep shearing. So she took off her widow's garb, covered her face with a veil, and wrapping herself up, sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shiloh was grown up, yet she had not been given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he took her for a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside... uh, So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, let me sleep with you. For for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What she asked, Will you pay for sleeping with me? He replied, I will send a kid from my flock. But she said, You must leave a pledge until you have sent it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your seal and cord and the staff which you carry. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she conceived by him. Then she went on her way. She took off her veil and again put on her widow's garb. All right. Oh my God. I, I know, right? When is this film coming out? Insanity or genius? I don't know. All right, so 12. So sometime afterward, Judah's wife dies. When his period of mourning is over, Judah went up to Timnah with his sheep shearer. So he's got flocks. When, you, when you're a semi-nomadic pastoralist and you have flocks, comes the season, it's time to go to the shearers so that you get the money from the wool. 
Uh, and that's a long process. You have a lot of sheep. You have to travel. You're there for like three days. It's like the sheep shearing festival, right? Um, and the convention, and you then come back. So he takes everybody with him, and they go to Timna, to the sheep shearers. And Tamar is told, your father-in-law is coming up to Timna for the sheep shearing. Tamar has seen, as we see in a few sentences, that Shelah is now old enough to be married, and there's no movement by Judah at all to change her status. Um, So she took off her widow's garb, covered her face with a veil, Wrapping herself up, she sat down at the entrance. You just have to love Torah. You have to love Torah. Where, where does she sit? At the entrance to a place called what? You gotta love Torah. Enaim. Enaim. What's Enaim? Eyes. So watch how many times we see something about eyes or seeing. She sits at a place called Enaim. Eyes which is on the road to Timna. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as wife. When Judah saw her, he took her for a harlot, for she had covered her face. Is that customary? Was that a sign that someone was a harlot? No. It's not a sign that someone's a harlot. I would think... Quite the opposite. Yeah. So in uh, in yeah. some uh, neighboring cultures, you you were not allowed to cover your face if you were a cultic prostitute. If you were a cultic prostitute or a harlot, you were not allowed to cover your face. If you did, you were given forty lashes and pitch was poured on your head. Oh, wow. So why would she cover her face then? If, if, so he wouldn't. So he wouldn't recognize her. Yes, but this is not. Why, why would he think she's a harlot then? Because she was. Okay, so okay. she covers her face with a veil. He turns aside to her by the road and propositions her. Does he know she's a harlot? I don't know. It says that he took her for a harlot. Why? She's wearing fuchsia. I don't know. She's got on, you know, mesh stockings with a seam up the back. I don't know, but he, he takes her for a harlot. But this clearly, is not the first time we have deception by veil. Well, we're, we are so going there. So we're so going there. So he takes her for a harlot for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What she asked, will you pay for sleeping with me? He replies, I will send a kid from my flock. The fact that he does not have cash in his pocket means he was not looking for this encounter. He has nothing with him to pay for this. So this is clearly, he's just, Happening down the road on the way to the sheep shear, and oh wow, would you look at that, right? So he, he, this is not planned, right? But he's he's a very wealthy man. He says, no problem, I'll have a courier bring you, you know, a kid by by this evening or whatever. Why why isn't there a provision in the first place that the um, widow could be impregnated by the dead man's father rather than a brother. 
So, uh, in, in some instances, we think it was the case that it was, and actually, she, actually, to your point, she's mad at him. She's mad at whom? She's mad at Judah. For not Because Judah hasn't given me his son. So in Genesis, it appears leveret marriage, the obligation is on the father of the dead son to make sure that she, that a son happens through her. Um, because in other cases, it would have been the lever she would have been angry at. Because it, right? be it was his obligation. It was the, In Deuteronomy, it's the lever's obligation to do this. It might have been the father would be too old or would be dead already. It, it, very possible. But it, but it seems the obligation, if he's alive, is on the father to make it happen, which is one of the defenses of what Tamar does. Laura? But he doesn't know that it's her. Well, maybe he does. Okay. Okay. Now you need to just start with that sentence, Laura, for me to follow you anywhere down that little rabbit hole. That is, so, yes, that's what I'm thinking. Wouldn't that be convenient for him to solve this problem by saying, hey, I'm not supposed to do this, but if I don't know it's her and I think I just pretend that it's not, then... um, I can check all the boxes. I can check all the boxes. My, my third child is saved, and I want to save his life. I've learned from my mistakes as a young man when I hurt my father so badly, and now I know it's you know, the pain that it's caused. Okay, so, 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 so generally, novel for Laura. Then it's Laura's new novel. See, but you weren't, you didn't like the other one you were working on. Here you go. We gave you a new one. So, yeah, you'll pass. So, um, and generally, I, you know me. I'm, I'm ready to go anywhere and say, okay. The, the only problem I have with that is that the omniscient narrator says. For he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. Usually I'm like, okay, maybe he knew, maybe he didn't. Like with Isaac, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't. Whenever we have the omniscient um, narrator telling us stuff, I'm always kind of like, that that seems fairly authoritative in terms of what the author is is imagining or intending. But, But we can, but we can... It, we can it, imagine, it can we? Out, it works it out, works though, in Laura's way. version. Yes, so, Lynn. Here, meaning he was going to try to sleep with her and then right. pay her, maybe maybe not pay her. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So, so, uh, so, so part of what we're always doing is like, how much do we demonize this one? How much do we, you know? And so we're always trying to read in, like, is Judah just kind of do 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 like, or is he like really? A creep, you know, is it really gross? Right, you know, so it's we can right, so we can read it, you know, lots of different ways, and 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 some want to criticize Judah saying not Zornberg, I think mentions for, probably because she's a genius and knows everything um, from the tradition, probably that um, that 
Judah didn't recognize her because Judah never saw her. Judah never saw Tamar. And she was property. He never saw her. And so, of course, he doesn't recognize her. How would he recognize her? He really never saw her. First episode of Women's Live right here. There, oh, we, honey, <laughs> Eve is the first of those, but that's another conversation for another time. That's a good one. My interpretation of that story. All right, so he replies, I will send a kid from my plot flock. He's a wealthy man. Maybe he's a jerk and he's trying to postpone payment. But she said, you must leave a pledge until you have sent it. Meaning, I'm taking your driver's license <laughs> and your corporate American Express card, right, until I get my payment, right? So he said, what pledge shall I give you? She's very, very smart. What does she say? Your seal and cord and the staff which you carry. These were somebody's passport and driver's license. The seal was a long cylindrical seal that had intricate designs in it that you rolled in wet clay as your signature in the ancient Near East. So that was your driver's license, right? It was your identifying whatever. The staff had an ornamental head on it that identified you as an important member of your you know, clan. And it was, each was absolutely unique. Uh, and so it was your passport, right? You, those things that we would consider, okay, I know for sure it's George's because who parts with their driver's license or passport, like, right? So. Um, I know for sure George gave them to her because yeah. who would who would part with that, right? Okay, so and he agrees. Yeah. So because he's a man, is one interpretation. So or maybe he did intend to. So he he's either you could say a little desperate, right? He, he's so eager, or. It, it's, it's for me. It's not out of character for Judah to like completely dismiss that there's any danger here. She's a harlot after all, right? She's a she's a prostitute. He'll track. He'll have his guy track her down tomorrow tonight, tomorrow morning, and this is taking care. Like she's an idiot. She's right. Like who, who, however we want to ascribe his motives, he is willing. Gives them over. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she conceived by him. So whenever we have, boom, he slept with her, she conceived. According to Torah, this is always, always something desired by God. Always. Conception? When, when she sleeps with him and conceives right away, that is always a good thing. Yeah, it's like a sign. It's a sign, right? So, and the opposite is that women are barren. She went on her, so then she went on her way. She took off her veil again and put on her widow's garb. So she's, after their encounter, she goes back home to her father's house and puts on her widow's garb. Well, what does that mean for Judah now? Right? So, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so, verse 20. Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adulamite to redeem the pledge from the woman, but he could not find her. He inquired of the people of the town. Where is the cult prostitute, the one at Enaim by the road? But they said, there has been no prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I could not find her. Moreover, the townspeople said, there has been no prostitute here. Judah said, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. 
I did send her this kid, but you did not find her. All right, so Judah sends the pledge. Not only can they not find her, but, but when they ask around, there's been no prostitute here because that's the truth. There was no prostitute here. Judah took her for a harlot. It doesn't say she dressed up as a harlot, right? No, it was he. He saw her as what he wanted at that moment. Someone who would be available for sex. And so that's how he saw her. But people said, there's been no prostitute. There's not like, I don't know, she was here at three. (laughs) Her shift must be over, right? Like, so they're, they're, they're suggesting that no one else saw a prostitute. Only Judah saw her as a prostitute because that's how Judah Judah always sees or doesn't see according to Judah's wishes. Judah's right, but she has proof that it was Judah. So yeah. she's taken the proof, and he says, "Let her keep him," because he assumes she's some, you know, like I said, you know, whatever, and that she, it's more embarrassing to him to really go searching for where's that woman I gave my driver's license and passport to. That's more humiliating to him than some prostitute that has his stuff. He'd been scammed. He'd been scammed, he thinks, right? And Because so, he's like, I sent the kid and she wasn't there. I did my part, but I've clearly been scammed. What am I going to do, right? Let it, let it go. Okay. He said the kid was going to be from his flock. Yes. And yet he sent, uh, I, is there any significance? He sent the kid by his friend? Uh, no, this is his, his errand boy. Actually, the kid will be from oh, his flock. Okay, okay. So it was, it was, it was his kid. Okay. So, about so bad, Judith. Later. So okay. bad. About three months later, Judah was told. So she's back with her father. Yes. Okay. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. In fact, she's with child by harlotry. Bring her out, said Judah, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. And she added, examine these, whose seal and cord and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I. Inasmuch as I did give her I did to my not. I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he was not intimate with her again. Okay. So Let's be clear that if if the father-in-law sleeps with his daughter-in-law in any situation other than a leveret situation, it is incest. Mm. But in this case, it is incest. Other than what situation? Leveret marriage. Other than what we talked about, being the, if unless he's playing the lever. It is incest. Unbeknownst. So, what is the what is the punishment for incest? Death. 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 Yeah. All right. So let's hold that in our minds. So three months later. So now, obviously, she's showing. Right. She has a baby bump, so that there's some kind of proof. She's not just going to be her word. She right. It becomes evident to people that she's pregnant, and they go to Judah and say, "Your daughter-in-law has played the harlot." Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in fact, she's with child by harlotry. Right. Mm-hmm. Because she has stepped out of what her her marriage commitment situation is. It's considered a zona. Right. She's she's been played the whore. Uh, and so Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. So we're not clear what the actual punishment for 
uh, a woman committing that act is in terms of how she is to die, but the punishment is death. So she, he's saying death penalty, right? If she has stepped out of what her, you know, her, her fertility is claimed by my family, if she steps out of that, she's dead. Right, so he who put her in her father in her father's house with no intention of having her marry his son, he has condemned her to a life of no status, which is worse than in some cases being dead. Right, you you, you have no status in the society and no hope for it because she's not going to be able to marry someone else, um, and so she's completely ruined. So she takes the ultimate chance. She takes the ultimate chance becomes pregnant, takes Judah's stuff, and as she's being brought out, she did not do this publicly. As she's being brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. She has just sent a package with the seal and the cord and the staff. So what has she just done, essentially? She's given up her leverage. It's not checkmate. Because he could say, burner. Nobody would know. But he realized something. But Okay, but, what, but we're saying with Tamar right now. Tamar has given up her last bit of leverage. Why would she do that? She trusts him in some way. I well, so how come she just doesn't do it in public? If she's still hopeful, why doesn't she just take them and say, all right, y'all, yeah, I'm pregnant by the person to whom these belong? Ha, ha, ha. Because that would shame him. And that could either A, backfire, right? Or B, um, not be a way that Tamar wants to win. So she's saying, bless you, do the right thing. This yes. is what you've of done. Of course. So she, right she's, she's saying, I'm giving all of my leverage up. Right. I'm not doing I'm, this to share. I'm giving all of my leverage into your hands. Right. But he knows, she knows that he won't kill his own child. She doesn't know that. Uh, she, she doesn't know that. So there is a trust. She doesn't know that. She's hoping. She's hoping. She's hoping. She assumes that he will not kill his own child. She's what hoping. She to lose. She has nothing to lose at this point. He is. He is. Okay. I mean, he. It's very clear that that he understands she's done right. She's done correctly because he was withholding Shella. So her only other way to give her dead husband a son is to go to the father, which is where some scholars say. So obviously, in Genesis, it was at this time it was understood that the father-in-law was, and and from documents from around early Israel, around the same time. That was the case. You could give her to the father-in-law. Because he didn't. Right, and he withheld. The plan was for Shela to fulfill it, and then he withholds Shela. So he had doomed her. It'd be even worse if the father-in-law was not a candidate in this. Yes. Yes. So, um, so, but what's what's amazing about this? A lot of levels we're going to go to. But um, so she takes the seal and the cord and the staff and sends them and says, Right, I am 
um, with child by the man to whom these belong. But she adds a sentence to that. That's all she needed to say. But what does she add? Hakerna lemi hachotemet. Recognize, please, to whom these, you know, whose are these? Right? Examine, it says examine, but it's recognize, please, whose seal and staff and cord are these? Recognize whose fault this well, is. Who's, who's, take a look in the mirror. Um, yeah, right. When, the, when they go back after our incident in chapter, at the end of chapter 37, they go back to their father. <coughs> What happens? Oh, they bring Joseph's coat and they dip it in blood and they give it to their father and they say, Hakerna, recognize, please, to whom does this coat belong? And Yaakov knows it's Joseph's and Yaakov makes an assumption that he's dead. The brothers have taken that garment and they have used that garment and the words hakerna, recognize please to whom these belong, to deceive their father for their own selfish means. Tamar says hakerna, recognize please to whom these belong in order to tell the truth about what has happened. One is used for deception. The same exact words are used by Tamar with an identifying object to say she is going to she is going to do a tikkun. She's going to repair that by saying how care not recognize and now you will understand the truth of what has happened here. So they use this garment of Joseph's as a way to deceive their father. Tamar uses a veil, right? Tamar uses a veil in order to obscure things, just like the coat was obscuring something. She uses the veil to obscure something, but in order to to do what is right and to get to the truth. Again, the exact opposite of what is happening in 37 and in 41, (laughs) right? Like um, this is the turning point. It is at this point that then we get the rest of the story, right? We don't hear about the brothers. They've just sold Joseph into slavery. They tell their father, yada, yada. And then we don't hear nothing about the brothers until they go down to Egypt. Once they go down to Egypt, what happens there with Judah? When they go down to Egypt, what does what Judah, Judah do there? Isn't he the one who comes forward? To do what? He won't let the youngest brother go, that's for sure. Doesn't want his youngest brother to go. Didn't he offer to be like a hostage? So Judah steps forward in that situation to put himself forward to say, you don't understand what this will do to our father. This will kill our father if you ask Benjamin to come down here. Right? It is Judah who understands what it is to lose sons and to be deceived and to have someone use exactly his words to his, their words to their father, hakerna, recognize please, to have someone use those words on him for righteousness and justice 
and goodness and to lift up his own flaws and his own right his own rash willingness to be ready to judge and burn Tamar. So brilliant literary device. Beautiful literary things going on here, all about seeing and not seeing who we see, how we see them. Right? It is very clear that until this moment, Judah sees her as a as an object. He sees her as whatever it is he needs her or doesn't need her to be. In the house, he doesn't see her. Like I missed one reading as he doesn't see her, so he doesn't recognize her by the side of the road, right? He and he takes her for a harlot because that's what he needs in that moment. He's always seen Tamar through the lens of what he wants and what he needs until she says, recognize, see. And finally, Judah sees. Judah Understands, And we know it's not just in this instance because we go on in the story to see a changed Judah after this episode. You said Judah was the one who came up with the idea to put Joseph in To sell him into slavery. Instead of, killing him. Instead of leaving him in the pit. Because had he been left in the pit, he, he would have died. died, which was kind of the plan. Um, so uh, tell me about... Uh, oh, uh, go to 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. While she was in labor, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife tied a crimson thread on that hand to signify this one came out first. But just then he drew back his hand, and out came his brother, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, on whose hand was the crimson thread. He was named Zerah. All right, so she not only gets pregnant with one son, she's pregnant with two, two sons. The sequel. Hmm? The sequel, isn't it? <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> yeah, the sequel. Um, she has two, right? While she was in labor, we have this bizarre story about one was going to be older, but then it isn't. Um, and his brother came out instead. And what a breach you've made for yourself. This is how the elephant got its trunk. This is how Peretz, mm-hmm. breach, got his name. Mm-hmm. So there was a clan of Peretz. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about the tribe of Judah. He gave us their name. Is this why people wear the red bracelet? Not that I know of. Judah, where's Judah? Right here. <laughs> Tell me about Judah in this in the land of Israel. Where's Judah? Uh, in the south. Thank you. Oh. Judah's in the south. Yeah. Who's in the north? Israel. Yeah. Judah's in the south. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, is in the north. What is another name for the kingdom in the north? Another name for the kingdom of Israel? Yosef. Really? Would I lie? <laughs> Would I lie to you? <laughs> Why does she know about this? <laughs> Another name for the kingdom in the north is Yosef. Which gives us a whole nother level of understanding politically why these stories are here. You get a story... Most of this story is about Yosef, about Joseph, about the north. 
Then you've got an episode stuck in here about Judah, about the South. And what is the story? Forget all, there's a great story. I love this story. It's one of my favorite pieces. And and it's amazing I got a job here after teaching this story (laughs) as my audition piece. Um, It's a great story, but what is the end? What does it all point to? What is this all pointing to? She has the baby named Parrots. Why is this all about parrots? Because parrots is an ancestor to whom? Come on. Come on. Don't lose. Don't go anywhere. Judah? David. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. Parrots is an ancestor to King David. This whole story is about the ancestry of King David from the tribe of Judah. So not only, so you want to ask me, did, did, does the Torah approve of what she did? She gets not only one baby, she gets two, right? But does Torah approve of what she did? Clearly, yeah. She becomes the ancestress of King David through everything that she just did, seducing her father-in-law in order to get pregnant and have a baby and to make sure justice happened in the only way that she could do it, given the circumstances of her life. And her it must have been God's will. So there's so many layers. Always we have to remember how many layers there are to read these texts on. But politically, there is absolutely a motive here that this story is right smack in the middle of the story of the northern kingdom's, you know, big novella in Genesis. We got this incident in the middle that makes it very clear what happens that we get the the ancestor of King David and the central focus on Judah. I'm not going to take a lot of time on these texts. Um, I just thought it was, I always try to give you a little bit to take home. Uh, And so on 326, you'll see that uh, Zornberg is talking about... um, Talking about Joseph and talking about emptiness and talking about going into the pit and talking about being in the um, the Sohar, the Beit Sohar, the um, dungeon, right? Uh, so he's she's talking about this sense of emptiness. Oh no, wait, I'm on the wrong page. It's 292. Sorry, sorry, I was wondering, I couldn't find it. So go down to the very bottom of 292. Joseph has been projected into such an emptiness. In the next chapter, Tamar uses all her cunning and courage to fill her eternal, uh, her internal emptiness, literally, with child. The Jerusalem Talmud has her prey in fear and desire. Master of the universe, let me not go empty from this house. Internal emptiness is the specific site of fulfillment in the biological lives of women, right? There, there has to be an internal emptiness for there to be room for a child. So what she's saying is there's emptiness and there's emptiness. There's Joseph's emptiness, right? Your darkness, despair, whatever, loss of meaning. Um, then literally for women, there is an emptiness that is the only thing that allows for it to be filled with another human being. Tamar speaks of a desire at once physical and metaphysical to be filled by the seed of the house of Jacob. She recognizes the terror of going out empty and will risk the fire to fill herself. 
Her sense of the hollow space at her core gives her passion and guile to choose her own destiny. What a story. So there is emptiness, but I think what Zorenberg, if we really push Zorenberg's point further, I would suggest it is that physical and metaphysical emptiness, it is in the desire to fill that that she finds the courage and the strength and the creative, if crazy, way to have that happen. That is the only way it ever happens, is that we get in touch with the metaphysical emptiness. And then when we're connected with that and our true desire to fill it, and I don't mean fill it like we do with stuff and shopping and you know, like whatever, I mean to truly be filled, um, then we find the means, the way, the path, and then we have to find the courage and sometimes the guile, right, and whatever um, to, to come out uh, full. And where do we buy the veil? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so come down to, uh, go over to 326. Amy, what's amazing to me is that if you read this story strictly as a literal story, <clears throat> You miss so much of the depth that yes. you've given us. So yes. You have to open up the emptiness to get the stories. Absolutely. To just read and it, you're just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of bizarre, right? But when we open it, it's right and turn it and turn it, as Tara says. Three twenty-six, uh, with the like third paragraph down or something, with the carelessness, with the carelessness of the childless, Judah has tormented his father. Right, so Judah has participated in what he did to his father out of the carelessness of the childless. And youth. And youth. But in this case, Zornberg's staying with the difference after Judah has sons. Right? Um, so he, if you don't have a child, you can't possibly, they could not possibly imagine what they were doing to their father to bereave him of Joseph. Presumably forever. Once they sold him, they, they had no way to find him. I mean, although there's a midrash that says that's why they went down to Egypt. It wasn't because of the famine. It was to find their brother. Um, with the so uh, the word used to, to so tiganta'a, um, the word used to express torment, has basic meanings of an instrument of torture and execution, unimaginable physical agony. The Midrash focuses on this anguish and on Judah's responsibility for it. His growth to responsibility and leadership is calibrated on a gauge of pain and empathy. Right? She's talking about this moment as a changing moment for him. Right? His responsibility and future leadership is calibrated on a gauge of pain and empathy out of this chapter. Out of losing two children and the fear of losing a third Initiated into the fellowship of pain, Judah becomes capable of investing the whole force of his personhood in preventing its recurrence, right? He now is going to invest his entire personhood in making sure it doesn't happen to Benjamin. Judah stands surety for Benjamin. Just as previously in the context of his children's death, he had left with Tamar, twice widowed of his two sons, a pledge in lieu of payment for sleeping with her. The pledge that Judah had left was his seal, his cord, and staff, the emblems of his leadership. Symbolically, Tamar demands his self in pledge. 
She produces these emblematic expressions of his responsibility. Just as pregnant with his children, she's about to be burnt for profligacy. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. Please recognize these. Whose seal and cord and staff are these? When she says recognize these, she appeals for a kind of vision, a way of seeing her and their connection that is tantamount to spiritual recognition. And there's a midrash, recognize your creator, she says, and do not hide your eyes from me, she says in the midrashic narrative. For Judah had not been visually proficient earlier in the story. So she's She's not only saying, who to whom do these belong? She took on purpose, not only those things that were his, like his driver's license, like it had to, it's uniquely his. She also took the symbols of his leadership, of his responsibility, so that when they come back, recognize whose are these. She's also saying, recognize who are you? Are you going to do what a responsible leader would do? Or are you a fake? Are you a poser? This is the moment. It's not just that they're his. Yes, that's damning and and all of that. And it's absolutely uniquely his. Absolutely his proof she's pregnant by him. But but even further, Zornberg is suggesting, she takes his emblems, his expressions of, of leadership and responsibility. And then when they come back, it's like, okay, now, buddy. The big guy, the big leader, the big one who gets to make all the decisions about your sons and everything else. Really? Are you ready to lead? Are you ready right, to, to show the responsibility it's going to take? And in this moment, all of it turns. He says, she is more in the right than I. And that changes how the rest of the Joseph story unfolds. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.